0: Hello oh, and welcome to Church for the Cities podcast in Yuma, Arizona, with lead pastor Tyrone P. Jones. Our mission is for people to encounter the reality and presence of God. For sermon videos and next steps, visit us at ctcfamily.com. Now join us for the message. Well honestly, I'm not going to um, I'm not gonna preach very long, I don't think. I don't think. Something could happen, <laughs> but it's not the plan. But I want you to take out Mark, the book of Mark. I'm going to read a few verses there. Uh, But I I am planning on challenging you a little bit with this message. I'm going to try to take you down to the deep end for for just a bit. And really look at the reason why Jesus died from some different angles. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 and we'll read down through verse 31. Mark eight twenty-seven through 31. Here's what the word of the Lord says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Can you say amen? You may be seated. Now we're we're right on into where we started a, a couple of weeks ago on this whole topic the theme of the uh, the king's cross and we wanted to bring about the truth of jesus from a from a standpoint that was so unexpected or so unidentified by the people that jesus was walking with and living with uh, we know that uh, the the Jews and the scribes, and the Pharisees, we, we know that they didn't quite understand Jesus, but we're even learning that even some of the disciples didn't quite understand some of the things that he did and why he did what he did, particularly the fact that he was identified as a, as a king. He was known to be a king. It was without a doubt that he was a king, but he just wasn't ordinary. He just wasn't ordinary. We, we talked on Sunday about him coming in in humility, uh, coming in on a, on a donkey uh, instead of some other more glamorous fitting way for a king. We talked about him being more concerned about their intimacy uh, with the Lord, more about their spiritual fervor than their religiosity when he, when he went in and turned the, uh, the temples upside down. Not to mention the fact of, of the cross and where we are in Mark chapter eight is, is really a, a pivotal moment. It's a, it's a pivotal moment for Jesus. It's a pivotal moment for the disciples because now he's starting to give them more details about his mission of what he really came to do. Now, mind you, they've already seen some miraculous things. They've already seen him do some miracles. Uh, they've seen him uh, do some wonderful teaching that's had an impact upon people's life. But now he's telling them what his mission is, as if what they have seen has not been part of it. And, and so he's, he's informing them that all of that stuff that you saw, that's part of what I do because of who I am, but that's not my mission Now, So at the same time, I guess it would be safe to say that they're starting to understand a little bit more of his identity, especially when we talked about Peter going up on Mount Transfiguration. By doing so, or by understanding so, when Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? Who do they say I, the Son of Man, am? Peter got the question theologically correct. He said that you are the Messiah, meaning you're the Christ, you're the Christos, the anointed one, you're the king of kings. But it's what Jesus said next that just made, it, it was just so appalling uh, and so egregious because after he says that you're the, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, then Jesus Uh, The Scripture says this, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days and rise again. The emphasis there is what he's beginning to teach them now. Now he's beginning to teach them what's going to happen to, to him Everything else Jesus done before then was simply displays of his power, simply displays of his greatness, simply displays of him being the son of God, all of the miracles that they had saw and the great works that he had that he had done, the crowds that he was gathering. But now he's going to teach them. It's, it's, it's an important word, the word Didasco. It really means to fully inform and fully instruct. In other words, it's like Jesus is saying, all of that I'm glad you saw but I really need you to get this. This is what I need you to get. It was intentional, it was, it was systematic, uh, it, was, it was Jesus at his finest. For them, after stating that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, then he says, then you need to get this, that I'm gonna suffer, that I am going to be killed, that I am going to die. Now, he let them know that he was going to rise again after three days, but I can assure you, none of them heard that. They, they did not hear that. All they heard him say is, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be taken by these folks, and I'm going to die. That's all he, they heard. And the reason why we know that is because Peter, the scripture says he said it plainly, and then Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Now, if he'd have heard that he was gonna rise after three days, I don't think he'd have been so stressed or so worried. But he pulls him aside and rebukes him. Anybody ever been rebuked? Yeah, I have. <laughs> I have. <laughs> Rebuking, I mean, it, it's not a simple, oh, Jesus, you just, come on, man. You, you, you tell so many stories. We don't, we can't keep up with everything. No, no, no. Rebuking is not just simply, you know, you got that wrong and you need to correct it. No, no, no. Rebuking is, and now I I will say this about Peter. He did have the, what would be the right word when you do somebody the right way? He didn't do it in front of everybody, right? He did pull him aside. It was like, uh, you know, it's 12 disciples and they're all there and they hear this and it's like, uh, Jesus, can I talk to you? (laughs) And here comes, of course, James and John always comes along, right? No, 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 fellas. Mm -mm, No, just Jesus. (laughs) Just me and Jesus. A, B, conversation. What is wrong with you? How can you say, what do you mean rebuke? I mean, he just jumps on him like you are out of your mind. And Jesus does what Jesus does. He basically listens to what Peter has to say, and then says to him, you of the devil, right? <laughs> you so far off that you are of the devil. But he packages in this manner, you're listening and caring for the things of man and not the things of God. And, and you know, I do want to believe that most of the time, us as Christians, I, I, can, dare, I can dare say there was no way in the world Peter had jumped to the side of the devil, of Satan. But oftentimes when we really miss the mark on what Jesus is trying to teach us and we don't embrace it without knowing it, we've just joined the other side. We've just joined the other side. Because anything that's not for Jesus is contrary to Jesus. And so he tells him that he's of, that he's He's speaking as if someone who's not paying attention to the things of the Lord. But as ridiculous as this sounds, as ridiculous as it seems, Jesus does emphasize the point that I have to die. Now, I want to give you some reasons uh, outside of what we know, but I want to frame it maybe in a manner that you haven't heard on the reasons, the necessity of Jesus dying. And the first one is a personal necessity, a personal necessity. Now, I want you to to understand this and you're gonna have to follow along with me. Whenever uh, we talk about Jesus dying, one of the things that we fail to miss in that is the tremendous expression of Jesus's love that was absolutely necessary for us. Now, I'm not meaning his love to die for us, but the absolute necessity of us understanding what true love is. I, I, I love this quote, and uh, it's a guy named Van Stone, and this quote actually came out of a book that, that uh, Philip Keller did. And he talks about, before I get into the quote, he sets this up by saying that all of us as human beings— we know what is fake love and what is true love. We know what is false love and we know what is authentic love. We may not know it initially, but soon enough you come to the conclusion that that's not real, true love. Van Stone said it like this. He says, in false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. Your love is conditional. It's given only as long as the person you're giving your love to is affirming you and meeting your needs. And it's also non-vulnerable. You hold back so that you can cut your losses if necessary. But in true love, your aim is to give yourself for the happiness of the other. Your greatest joy is that person's joy. This gives way for affection to be completely unconditional. You give love regardless of whether the one you love is meeting your needs. It is radically vulnerable, maybe even recklessly vulnerable. End of quote. You know, we sing that song about the reckless love of God. And when you consider the aspect, especially in light of that definition of how our love can be versus what is true love, we understand why it was said about Jesus that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross in spite of the shame. In other words, Jesus didn't endure because he had something coming to him. Jesus didn't endure it because this was going to be something that came His way for His goodness. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him, and the joy wasn't about Him. The joy was about us having our souls redeemed. The joy was about us having our sins cleansed. The joy was about us having eternal life. It's for that reason that Jesus endured the cross. And so what we learn from that, that our real problem is that none of us actually are fully capable of giving true love or pure love or unfeigned love. It's not that we can't get love, give love at all because all of, us, all of us can, but we need love like we need air and water. We can't live healthily without it. So that means in some aspect, we're love mercenaries. We need love just like we need air and water. So everything we do is so that the love we need is coming back to us. Are y'all following me so far? And so we invest love only when we would know we're going to get a good return. So this means our love is conditional. This means our love is not non-vulnerable. We're not loving the person simply for who they are. Rather, we love partly for what we're getting. So what we need and absolutely need is someone who will love us and doesn't need us at all. And that's where Jesus comes in. Someone who loves us radically. Someone who loves us unconditionally. Someone loves us vulnerably. Who loves us just for our sake. And the only person who can demonstrate that is Jesus. He created us. He redeemed us at a great cost, and he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. And that's the perfect love. That's the radical love. That's the vulnerable love. And as we begin to get that and experience that kind of love, then the falsity and the manipulativeness of our own love starts to wash away because we start to realize that we really can love somebody truly, not because we demonstrated it, but because Jesus demonstrated it for us. And the more we fall into the love of Jesus, then the more secure we become in ourselves, the more patient we become with others, and then we really begin to show true love. It was an absolute necessity that Jesus died on that cross to show me what real love is really all about. 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we, we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. We wouldn't have never known how to do that if we had not had the necessity of Jesus's love coming toward us. Y'all doing all right? right. The second thing is a, is a legal necessity, a legal necessity. The first one was that personal necessity having—it was a must for us to see true love. The legal necessity has to do with our debt, has to do with our debt. Every time you wrong someone or every time somebody is wrong, there's a debt established. There's a debt established, and it has to be paid. You can think of it as simple as somebody breaking your window, throwing a baseball and breaking your window. Somebody's got to pay for it. Now, either they can pay for it or you can say, don't worry about it, forget about it, but you have to pay for it. There's a debt. There's nothing that someone can do against you that a debt is not established. When somebody robs you of an opportunity— or somebody robs you of happiness, or somebody robs you of your reputation, or takes away something you'll never get back. There is a sense of a debt. Justice has been violated, and you're owed. In those cases, you can either try to make that person pay you by either destroying the opportunities or ruin their reputation or maybe even hope that they suffer for what they've done, or you can forgive them. But even when it comes to forgiveness, I think everybody in-house can tell you, forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness hurts. Forgiveness costs somebody. Forgiveness is never free. Even when you choose to forgive, you take the blow internally. You take that blow. Even when you're harboring vengeful thoughts or you're harboring vengeful actions, but you don't do it, you're taking the blow when you refrain, when you forgive, you're taking that hurt on. So instead of the other person suffering, you absorb the cost. And true suffering, true forgiveness always entails suffering. Yet only by paying the price of forgiveness can anybody be made right. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He knew the only way to pay for man's sin is to suffer so we can be forgiven. The Scripture says the wages of sin is death. So Jesus absorbs the debt that all of us have by suffering on the cross. So the debt is paid, and we need it to be paid, but it was paid by Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. And I just want to pause there once again, and I don't want to keep harboring on what I harbored in on next week, but I'm telling you as a church, the one thing I want people from Church for the City to know is that Jesus Christ has paid the price for all of your sins. If you trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to concern yourself about your sins. Now, by no means does that mean you keep on sinning. As a matter of fact, the scripture says, how can you keep on sinning if you've been made anew by Christ Jesus? But all of your sins have been paid for He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered a physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. Can you say amen? And so there, so there was a personal necessity. We needed Jesus to die so that we can understand what true love is and give that love to others. And we, it's a legal necessity. We needed Jesus to die so that the debt that we owe others has been paid. And here's, here's the last thing. It's a cosmic necessity. Jesus had to die for us to know and show love, but Jesus had to suffer for the debt to be paid. But also, Jesus' death had to be violent and it had to be bloody. Hebrews 9:22 says this, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. I want you to catch that. Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. People often ask, why couldn't Jesus just simply die? I mean, why couldn't he just just pass out and die? No, it's it's not possible because, see, in the Scripture, whenever we see the word blood, especially in the New Testament, Leviticus sets the foundation of this. Blood in the Bible means life-given or life-taken, not by natural means. Did you follow that? Life-given or life taken not by natural means. In other words, whenever we read about blood in the Bible, it's talking about blood spilled out or blood poured out, meaning somebody was killed, somebody was killed, and they did not die a natural death. So either there was a sacrifice that was made or somebody's life was taken violently. So the scripture says that blood is required. So that means this for blood to be fulfilled, or in this case for the death to be real, it had to be a sacrifice and his life had to be taken. In other words, Jesus couldn't have just been walking around in Jerusalem and say, hey y'all, I got to die for you and collapse. That's not the shedding of blood. That's a natural death. Jesus had to die by the shedding of blood. So that means his life had to be taken and it had to be violent so that blood can be shed. Are y'all, y'all still there? Y'all catching on? And so he made the greatest payment possible by shedding his blood own blood. It was he that didn't have a life that ended naturally like many of us could. That's why none of us are qualified to sacrifice our life for the life of others. Because first of all, we have sin in our life and second of all, we're not a perfect sacrifice. But there could not be the forgiveness of sins unless there was an absolutely perfect sacrifice and the sacrifice had to be by the shedding of blood. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the necessity of why Jesus had to die. Two more verses and team, you can come. Jesus didn't stop there at at Mark 8. He said it again in Mark 9. He said Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But he didn't stop there. He said it again in Mark chapter 10. Remember, he began to teach them. Verse 33, see we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But it all comes down to this. It all comes down to this statement in Mark chapter 10, verse number 45. And remember this, Jesus is not an ordinary king. He's not kings like all others. He's not a king like all other major founders of religions. Their purposes was to live and to be good examples and, and all that's good. But Jesus's purpose was to die and to be a sacrifice. Mark ten forty-five says this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. It all comes down to that. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, we sometimes, we well, used to see it more often, the great quote, John three sixteen. You could see it at ball games. You could see it at different, different places. And I think sometimes it had gotten so common that maybe people missed the real meaning of it but verse 17 is just as crucial it says for God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life but catch this for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him he didn't come to condemn us he came to save us and so good friday is those days when we have to look up on the bloody mess of the cross. And I like something Jurgen Moltmann said once. He said, you cannot look up on the cross and love it because of all the blood and all the suffering and all the anguish. But you have to look up on the cross and embrace it because it's absolutely a necessity for our salvation. Everybody stand if we would. I'm just going to close us out with prayer. We're going to go into that great song, nothing, nothing But the Blood. I'm going to pray for us as a whole and as a body, again, as a, as a fellowship, as we go into this Passion Week, this Passion Weekend now, and just really go before the Lord and be reminded of what He's done for us. You know, Easter has so many implications. We love it because it's obviously the greatest thing that's ever happened. But it also gives us a time to really reflect upon, do we really embrace what Jesus has done for us? He loves you. Nothing about Jesus wanted to condemn you. Nothing about Jesus wanted to make you feel like you were a failure or or you're lost or nothing about Jesus wanted to convince you that you were worthless and hopeless. Everything about Jesus was to say, I love you so much, I'm gonna pay your debt. I'm gonna show you what real love is. I love you so much that I'm going to give myself that you may have right to eternal life. Let's not miss that moment. Let's not miss that moment. Sometimes we can come to Easter service and we can, yes, he's risen indeed. And no, he rose 2000 years ago. But I'm telling you, go into this weekend as if he rose in your life today, as if he rose today, because he is indeed alive. Father, I want to thank you for being so good to us such an amazing God. The truths, the principles of your word is just outstanding. We can't say enough about your sacrifice. We can't say enough about the cross. We can't say enough about the salvation that we have. But we're so grateful that we can come together and celebrate it. Fathers, we celebrate all weekend long what you have done for us as we celebrate in this house and for those that are with us online. I pray that the reminders, Lord God, will be constant and continue. That you came, Lord God, to show us love and to pay our debt. And you gave a great sacrifice that we may have eternal life. Let us not uh, forget that. Let us embrace that. Let us hold on to that. And let us celebrate this newness that we have in you. You're an awesome God and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Can you say amen? God bless you.